Uh, we're doing a ugly Christmas sweater series, and I promised all of you that I would wear an uglier sweater than I wore last week. So hopefully I fulfilled that promise to every one of you. And uh, next week I'll wear an even uglier sweater, and I do have an uglier sweater next week. Um, what we are doing is we are looking at the ugly side of the Christmas story for the month of December. Uh, looking at some of those parts of the Christmas story that we neglect, that we read quickly over to get to the good parts, but often have a profound message for us in the ugly parts as well. And so as kind of a tribute to that theme, we're doing an ugly Christmas sweater each week. I went to Value Village and bought all these things for $5, and you might think, wow, I don't even know if that's worth $5. Um, but hey, it came with three batteries, and so maybe the batteries were worth $5. And if anybody would like my sweater after the service, just come up to me. I am willing to give it to you after the service. <laughs> we all know the Christmas carol, Away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus lays down his sweet head. The stars in the bright sky look down where he lay. And it's the little Lord Jesus just asleep on the hay. This is one of our, our favorite Christmas carols. It brings back warm feelings of childhood. It's kind of like a lullaby. We think of Christmas trees and stockings, hot chocolate, and the warm fireplace. We think of Christmas pageants with little girls tugging on their dresses and little boys picking their noses. It's beautiful. It's Christmas time. A time... When the little Lord Jesus lays down his sweet head. But when we get caught up in the Christmas cuteness, we can often miss the message of Christmas. Which breaks apart some of these 1950 Norman Rockwell images that you see behind me here. Because the real Christmas story is raw. The real Christmas story is evasive. The real Christmas story upsets the apple cider. In fact, even Norman Rockwell and his paintings are selectively remembered. I mean, this picture of this family here coming home, their arms full of gifts, ready to open their gifts and enjoy all of that Christmas coziness. But we have to ask ourselves, what's the backstory? How did these people, this family, come home at possibly Christmas Eve with their arms full of gifts like this? Probably on the back of this lady, another Norman Rockwell painting, who had to work on Christmas Eve for minimum wage to sell unnecessary items to the rich. And so we can even selectively remember our paintings, especially when we ask ourselves, and which group did Jesus come for? Now, obviously, Jesus came for everyone, but Jesus has a particular place and a particular focus in his ministry for people like the lady you see in this picture here. The poor, the sick, those who are not healthy. And so the real Christmas story can sour the eggnog. Now, I know some of you think that all eggnog is sour, but just think about what sour eggnog would be like. Even sourer than however revolting you already think eggnog is. 
In Philip, Philip Pullman's children's story, The Golden Compass, he depicts the church as lulling children to sleep by providing them with a false, a false sense of security and peace and comfort. And therefore, the church is able to brainwash people. Pullman is playing up on the popular accusation that many atheistic thinkers have of religion, of the church, that it's the opiate of the people. And sometimes it's an accusation that's all too true. The little Lord Jesus lays down his sweet head and sounds like a lullaby. And the gentle tune can put us under a spell like the Turkish delight that the white witch gave to Edmund in Narnia. And before you know it, you're captured by a not-quite-right story. But if you were about to give birth and were turned away at the hospital so that you had your baby at Mr. Lube and placed him in a sup-oil pan, would you think the whole thing was adorable? You'd think that it all didn't really fit. It's kind of ugly. Why would God want to have his king be put in the feeding trough? Why would the king of kings want his baby put in an oil pan like that? Wouldn't he want to open the best bed in the hospital for him? But when the Bible becomes cute, and even the manger becomes cute, it loses its power. It's power that actually pushes against comfort. No parent in their right mind would put their child in a feeding trough unless they were absolutely desperate. It's not just the kind of things that we do. We also read in Scripture that uh, while Zechariah was in the sanctuary, this is when Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, went into the Holy of Holies. We read there that when Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. And then it says these words, Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. I always find it interesting when people say to me, I wish I could see an angel. And I say to myself, or I say to them sometimes too, have you read in the Bible every time someone has an encounter with an angel? It doesn't look like this. It's shaken, overwhelmed with fear. We have instances of people like Ezekiel who almost become paralyzed for a few days afterwards. It knocks the life right out of them. Or when we read in the Old Testament God saying things like, Look, with the flood, I'm about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on earth will die. When we read about the flood account, is this the picture that comes into our mind? Now, when I look at this boat, to me, that looks like the Garden of Eden. Everybody going on a nice cruise, all the animals. The uh, lion is, is, is right next to the cows and doesn't even seem like he's hungry for them. Um, they're all just one big happy family. And if this is the way things are, and if this is the way things were on the ark, we have to ask the question, why did, 
God even come in Jesus? Why do we even need Jesus if everything is like paradise already? This is the world that Jesus came to save. This is the result of floods that massively take out life. Unless we understand that this is a huge part of the story. Of the floods, of the angels that come, of Christmas. Unless we understand this, Jesus will just be another decoration under our Christmas tree. Without an understanding of sin and how ugly things have become, there's no need for Jesus. If I didn't realize that this sweater that I was wearing was ugly, there would be no need for me to think I should probably change after the service. I'd just go through life wearing stuff like this. Unless it's pointed out to me, and unless I understand your sweater is hideous. You need to change. And in the same way, we need to understand that about Sin as well that mars us, that we need to put on something else, take off these garments, take off this sinful clothes that we're wearing so that we can be clothed with Jesus Christ. And in order for that to happen, Jesus had to come and enter a lot of ugliness. Away in a manger, no crib for a bed. Is this what we see when we read those words? Is Jesus and the Christmas story as fragile as precious moments? That if they just get tipped a little bit, they fall off and break? Satan's strategy in attacking the Christian faith is not often a full-out assault. He's often much more effective by being subtle. By making the faith cute. The real historic Christian story is that God became incarnate. And that means that amidst the manure, amidst the afterbirth and the blood and the flies and the dust, our God came to us in Jesus Christ. There were no wise men who came to the manger scene bearing rich gifts, but poor, dirty, outcast shepherds who came and had nothing to give. God came into real history into this real world, and he lived among us. He was an incarnation. He wasn't a fairy tale. He didn't just float through life as some kind of phantom. If we tell the Jesus story as sort of like a fairy tale, we shouldn't be surprised that when people grow up, they throw it away like Santa Claus. It's just a story. It's not real. We need to get into the realness of the story, even with our children, that we're talking about history. Even our creed mentions that it was under Pontius Pilate, a ruler in history, that Jesus was crucified and died. Mary, Jesus' mother, reminds us of the rawness of this story in her Christmas carol. It, it reminds us of the ugly side of Christmas. When Mary composed her song, it wasn't a lullaby to put Jesus to sleep. It was a revolt song to wake 
a sleeping world up. A song that if the authorities were close by listening, could have got Mary arrested. A song that eventually got Mary's son, Jesus, nailed to a cross. In Luke chapter 1, verses 45 to 55, we have a recording of Mary's song. After the angel announced to Mary that she was going to have a child, that she was going to have a child miraculously, she was a virgin, then we read this response from Mary, the Magnificat it's often referred to. Mary responded in Mary's song, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord. How my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He took notice of his lowly servant girl. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy. He has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. And now listen to what she starts to say. Think about any of the rulers, the authority figures back in Mary's day. God has scattered the proud and the haughty ones. He's brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. This is exactly why we're going to hear next week about Herod. And he started to get quite afraid when he heard about this Jesus coming. Because he scattered the proud and haughty ones, brought down princes and their thrones. He's exalted the humble as Mary was. He has filled the hungry with good things and he sent the rich away with empty hands. I mean, this is scary stuff. He has helped his servant Israel. He has remembered to be merciful. He has made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his children forever. That's Mary's song. Mary sees in the birth of Jesus the hand of God acting in a mighty way. Her song extends to the past, to the present, and into the future. It's a, a song of God who is always and will continue to be active. For years, uh, people have felt that God had remained silent. The last time there was a prophet in Israel had been a few hundred years ago. It seemed to be nothing but God's silence, Israel's dark night of the soul. And now, God was doing a new thing. A new prophet had been announced, John the Baptist, who was going to proclaim the prophet of prophets, Jesus Christ. God was on the move again. Mary's song was not something she made up. Mary knew her history. She was recounting the acts of God and saying that if this is how God had acted in the past, it is how God will act again today. Mary's song is an echo of a song sung earlier by a woman that was barren. Another miraculous birth. Back in the Old Testament, a thousand years before Mary, we encounter a woman by the name of Hannah. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, listen to Hannah's song. It sounds a lot like Mary's song. Mary probably had this song in her mind when she composed her own song. 
Hannah prayed when she told, was told that she also was going to have a son miraculously, though she was barren. Hannah prayed, my heart rejoices in the Lord. Sounds like Mary. The Lord has made me strong. But then look, it starts to turn into a revolt song again. Now I have an answer for my enemies. I rejoice because you rescued me. No one is holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Stop acting so proud and haughty. Don't speak with such arrogance. Hear the echo of the same words of Mary. For the Lord is a God who knows what you have done. He will judge your actions. The bow of his mighty or sorry, the bow of the mighty is now broken. And those who stumble are now strong. God's turning everything upside down. Or we could say right side up. Those who were well fed are now starving. Those who are starving are now full. The childless woman now has seven children. And the woman with many children withers and wastes away. The Lord gives both death and life. He brings some down to the grave, but he raises others up. The Lord makes some poor and others rich. He brings some down and he lifts others up. He lifts the poor from the dust and the needy from the garbage dump. He sets them among princes, placing them in seats of honor. For all the earth is the Lord's and he has set the world in order. He will protect his faithful ones, but the wicked will disappear in darkness. No one will exceed by strength alone. Those who fight against the Lord will be shattered. He thunders against them from heaven. The Lord judges throughout the earth. He gives power to his king who came through Mary. He increases the strength of his anointed one. I mean, these are dangerous songs that these women, Hannah, and Mary are singing. They're speaking of a God who delivers. The God of the Exodus. The God who rescued his people from the Egyptians. A God who will again rescue his people. And ultimately a God who will set everything right. A God who will restore his creation. Restore his world. Do away with the proud. Do away with the arrogant. Do away with those who think that they are God. And God will show who the true king is. God has crushed and will crush the thrones of princes. God has filled the hungry and sent the rich away with empty hands. How, how does all of this sound if we get past again the trees and the presence and the cuteness and the warmness? How does this sound to all of us with fairly successful, comfortable lives? These are songs of warning. These are songs, particularly for those that have stuff, have material things, have wealth, have riches. These are strong warnings of what are we doing with this? 
Is it just simply making us puffed up, making us arrogant, making us comfortable, making us live in gated communities and shut out the poor? Because God has strong things to say about that. And he will set everything right. How do these songs sound to the two-thirds world of the human race that go to bed hungry every night? Suddenly, Jesus isn't so cute anymore. As Robert Brown put it, it's all very political. We have managed to hide this fact from ourselves, but it is a fact that has led our sisters and brothers in the third world to give the song, this is Mary's song, a central place in their lives. This song that we in the West can so easily just sort of you know, yeah, it's in there, but we just turn it aside or sing it in choirs but don't really think of the words. This song has become so central to the lives of those in oppressed countries. And so the question to us goes, can we move beyond the comfortable, demure Mary of our tradition to the uncomfortable, militant Mary of their tradition? Mary is so convinced of the reality of these things happening that she sings them as if they are already true. Even though she's living still in the midst of oppression, see, she sings them as if they are already true now. Because she knows that when something's true for God, even in the future, it's as good as true now. Again, her song is not a lullaby. It's crashing drums, it's trumpets, it's distorted guitars. It's a declaration of war. It's a song that one marches into battle with. And so we have to ask ourselves, where do we get this idea that when Jesus came, all was calm? That Jesus slept in heavenly peace and that no crying he makes I mean, these sound a little bit more like fairy tales. And then as Jesus was laying there, there's this, and there's this light beaming down on him. His face glowed. I mean, a lot of pictures have, like, Jesus, like he's one of those glow worms. His, his face just kind of glows. And, I mean, where do we get all of these images from? The images come from, a lot of times, our hymns or our paintings. And I know that they're trying to get across certain things, but themes, but sometimes when we just immerse ourselves in that, we get a distorted picture, particularly a distorted picture from what we get in Scripture, which is much more earthy. The Scripture doesn't try to go so quickly like some of our songs and traditions do to making everything clean and holy. The scriptures get us right into history. When I read the scriptures, I don't read anywhere in scripture about a silent night. Even though we love to end so many of our services that way. Instead, what I read is the heavens breaking open. Angels shouting, glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. That's what we hear. That's what the scriptures say. Shouting angels, animals making noises, shepherds coming and interrupting Mary. Mary's just given birth, and yet now all these shepherds. How would you like it, ladies? You're in 
the hospital, you've just given birth, and all of a sudden, 14 janitors just burst into your room and start fawning over your child and talking, and then they also bring their animals with them and all that. It's not quiet. Now, some of you may say, but Pastor Steph, stop. Didn't the angels say, peace on earth? I mean, that, that seems to indicate some kind of softness. Well, no. The angels didn't say that. that. Those three words are only the three words that we take out of the sentence and stamp onto our Christmas cards that we send around. What the angels really said was peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. That's a big difference. In other words, peace on earth to those whom God likes. That's what the angel said. Now, I dare you to send out a Christmas card like that this Christmas. It's not going to cause a lot of peace in your family and with your neighbors and people like that. So if we're going to quote the Bible, let's quote the whole thing. According to Mary's song, God fills the hungry and sends the rich away with empty hands. That's the kind of peace this God brings. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. The future inheritance of the earth and the new kingdom to come, the new heavens and the earth, the future inheritance of this earth belongs to the humble. All of the proud, all of the arrogant, all of those who have tried to rule in their own might will all be long forgotten. Mary's song is upsetting. Where we sing about Jesus sleeping in heavenly peace, Mary sings a different tune. Mary sings a tune much more in line with what Simeon told her when they brought baby Jesus to the temple. When Mary brought Jesus to the temple... This is what we read. Then Simeon, an older gentleman who basically lived there in the temple, blessed them and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall. But he will be a joy to many others. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed because of this child. And Mary, a sword will pierce your very soul. I don't know how Mary took those words. But I find them quite eerie. Yes, he will be a joy to many. But at the same time, He's destined to cause many to fall. And somehow he's going to pierce the soul of his very own mother. What does that all mean? It doesn't sound peaceful. The child is going to break his mother's hearts. He'll reveal people's deepest thoughts. He will be opposed by many. It's all yuck and ick and ugly. So how did we get to warm cocoa and soft sing-along Christmas carols when Christmas should disturb us? 
In fact, in the church tradition, the time of Advent, the time of anticipation, the time of waiting, the time that we're in, was often practiced much more like Lent is practiced. A bit of a dark night of the soul. Darkness, waiting, anticipation. When is God finally going to do something? When, when? Now, yes, we know the end of the story. We know that it's all leading to Christmas. But yet we need to live in some of that darkness to really understand the light. The light that as we get closer and closer, more and more candles are lit and so it becomes brighter and brighter. Are the atheists correct? Have we been lulled to sleep by some of our Christmas songs? I mean, I I was just... Even the other day, just walking through the mall or in an elevator somewhere, and it's amazing. You, you can hear songs like, like of about Emmanuel, God with us, hark the herald angels sing. You hear the whole gospel story, and you're standing around with all these people, in the mall, and it's just tunes to them. Just hum along. Do they really think, do we really reflect on the words Because if we reflect on the words, these songs are scary. These songs mean that everything has been turned around. Something in history has happened at Christmas that has changed the whole world order. How did we get to the point where Christmas favors the rich and exploits the poor when both Jesus and St. Nicholas lived for the poor and put the rich in their place. How has it gotten so turned around where we can sit around the tree and hardly get through the avalanche of gifts where most kids in the world will be lucky if they get a shoebox full of toys from the dollar store? Something doesn't seem to fit with the biblical Christmas story. Making us ask the difficult question, can we actually hear Mary's song anymore? Robert Brown, who I quoted earlier, talks about a time when he and his wife were in Peru. And there, after a worship service, thousands of people that were in the worship service uh, jumped to their feet and started singing Mary's song. And he talks about how these people, these Catholics, after the worship service, jumped to their feet and then started pouring out into the streets with military authorities standing all around them with guns loaded and at the ready. These oppressed people poured into the streets singing Mary's song. Robert Brown, who was there witnessing all this, says this, that Those who have every reason to wonder whether God can any longer be called a God of justice and power. We're pouring out of the church, singing in the streets that God has shown strength with God's arm. Those who have been so often victimized by arrogant rulers who show no regard for the poor are pouring into the street singing, God has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. 
those who have been threatened and imprisoned by all of these leaders around us whose grip on power seems secure. They're pouring out of church and they're singing, God has put down mighty thrones. Those who have seen their families ground down, destroyed, with no apparent hope of ever rising again, are singing that God has exalted those of low degree. Those who worry about food for themselves and their children are singing that God has filled the hungry with good things. Those from whom the rich take more and more, whether legally or illegally, are singing that God has sent away the rich empty. These people are singing of a new world order. A world in which all the expectations have been turned around. And then Brown asks, as all of these people are singing in the streets and all these governing authorities are hearing all of this and hearing about what God is planning to do and who God is going to bring forth and raise up and who God is going to crush, Brown then asks, what are all these authorities supposed to do? Because all these authorities are quote-unquote good Catholics. And all these people are doing, are singing Mary's song. Do they realize what these people are really singing? Because when it comes to be, everything will be turned on its head. The song sounds so different on the lips of the oppressed. And that's why we need to listen to the lips of the oppressed. A few years back, there was a one-volume commentary called the African Bible Commentary that came out. Excellent resource. All the different books of the Bible commented on by different African Bible teachers and authorities. We need to hear from them. We're blinded by our way of reading the text, our way of reading Scripture, which is often from North American, Western, fairly affluent lives. We need to hear the voices of the poor. How do they read the text? How do they read the Scriptures? How do they understand it? Primarily because these are the people that God has a special place in his heart for. How do they hear Mary's song and what can we learn from them? So what's one of the things that we can do as Christians today to avoid being lulled into the lullaby of sleep and become freedom fighters for God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven people? There are many things that we can do, and in some ways it's just by starting small. Doing some small practical things to begin to get our thinking to change. I mean, it's as simple as buying fewer or less expensive gifts. Spend time with the less fortunate by inviting them to your house or going to visit them. Maybe read the Christmas stories of the Bible in light of the majority world. What are the kinds of comments? What are 
the themes that come out when people in the majority world read these Christmas stories. Maybe you can save a tree this Christmas and not send Christmas cards that most people look at for two seconds and throw away. Instead, use the money that you've saved for the food bank instead. I think the food bank needs your money more than Hallmark does. Or just stopping, slowing down, maybe quitting something, turning off your phone. It's amazing, even outside of the church, listening to CBC this week, uh, they were having different people talking about turning off the phone for Christmas. It's like, wow. Even outside the church, some people are getting it. Just enjoy being alive. Begin to engage with the world again. Not the virtual world, but the real world. The incarnational world. The world that God entered. The world that can sometimes be ugly. But that's the world in which we connect. With God and with one another. Mary ends her song by saying, God's mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He's brought down princes from their thrones, and he's exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, and he's sent the rich away with empty hands. And he's calling us, his people, to join Mary and to join his disciples and to join the people of faith to bring about and to live in the midst of his new world order, his kingdom come to earth. To begin living now as if it already is because one day it will be. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for sending Jesus into our world, real world, messy and ugly world at times, so that we could be part of the answer, your answer, to make the world beautiful again. Lord Jesus, may we understand and embrace the full message of Christmas, the dark and the light so that we can live into the truth of the Christmas story in our families, with our neighbors, at work, and all those around us. May we be your light, your salt into this world. Not run from the world, God, but may we, like you, come into the world in the midst of what can often be broken and ugly, so that we can tell people about the wonderful God who plans to make things beautiful again. May people, when they look at our own lives, see beauty and be attracted to the beauty in our own lives so that we can point them to the ultimate beauty in you. Amen.